All right, final week in this series on the Old Testament book, uh, Song of Songs. It's an erotic love song right smack in the middle of the Bible, uh, teaching us about the goodness of uh, male-female marital relationships. And it's been a fun series, hasn't it? Um, and each week we're trying to get the feel of the song. We don't have the music to this song. We've just got the lyrics And so we've been trying to feel out what would this song feel like if it were made today. And I've been encouraging Liv to write a song uh, on the Song of Songs so that we could sing it at weddings. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Um, And so we're going to play I've Forgotten forgotten the Prizes yet again. I'm so sorry. Uh, So this is just for if you win this game just for the the pride of it, okay? Uh, But we're going to play a game, uh, four songs that really tap into the longing of the song. Uh, that's what chapter eight's all about. If you call out the name of the artist or the name of the song, you will win kudos in everyone's eyes, right? Sorry, you don't have the prizes. All right, first song. Here we go. You ready? You ready? Yes, all right. It's good, isn't it? All right, here we go. When it's real, feelings hard to conceal. Can't imagine all the pain I feel. Give anything to hear half a breath. Sammy, I know you still live every breath you take. Bye. Puff Daddy. It's originally by Sting, right? And uh, but this is Puff Daddy and Faith Evans singing it. Now I remember. The, I remember. I was uh, 17 years of age. And I was standing in North Narrabeen car park just after a surf. And in comes this little blue Ford Laser with this song pumping out its speakers. And the seat was a cheeky girl. It was very cute. And that was the moment I started to fall in love with my wife. Been married 20 years next week. And, uh, you know, this was a defining moment in our, in our relationship. So there you go. Just an interesting song. As she hits that word at... It's as though you wonder what's causing her so much pain. And then she reaches for her second word, last, and it's as though all of her pain falls away. Her love has come along. Her lonely days are over, and her life is like a song. It's a beautiful start to the song, isn't it? That's the longing for intimacy. Uh, That's the second song. Third song. If you're an expert on music, I feel like we have to have a rule. No, no answers from the bottom table. Anyone else? Mumford and Sons. So these guys are my favourite band. And uh, this is a song, Only Love, and it builds and builds and builds to the point of the chorus when the four guys join in harmony. And they're singing, didn't they say only love will win in the end? But he's all alone. And there's this deep sense deep and profound uh, sense of, uh, of longing. Fourth and final song for all the Gen Z in the room, which aren't very many all right, looking around, but this is for Night Church. Ah, oh, well done, Zan's got it. All right. So I'm just Ken, Ryan Gosling in the Barbie movie. And uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, you would assume Disney movie, Ken and Barbie end up uh, sailing off into the sunset in love together right at the end of the so- the movie, but that's not what happens. And he sings this song right at the end going, uh, what does he say? I'll sleep alone tonight uh, where I see love. She just 
sees a friend. So he's totally in the friend zone, and he has this profound longing for something more than that. Okay, so there are four songs which really help us start to feel what is in chapter 8 of this Old Testament erotic love song in the Bible. We're not just trying to understand it, but feel, and there's deep pathos this week in the song. And um, today we're asking the question, we're thinking about the longing for intimacy. How do we deal with this ache for intimacy, which is in each and every one of us? How do we deal with this longing to experience deep and profound connection? And we're going to look at three things. First thing is the emptiness of sex without marriage. Secondly, the contentment of sex within marriage. And then thirdly, the mystery of marriage without sex. So the first thing we're going to have a look at is the emptiness of sex without marriage. In order to deal with the longings we have for relationship in life, this is the first thing we need to come to grips with, the emptiness of sex, fulfilling those longings outside of marriage. Now, in order to kind of make this point, I want to come back to the question which I raised at the start of the series, who wrote this song? Who wrote the song of songs? And um, I told you week one that it's almost impossible to believe that it's King Solomon, right? Even though the title of Song of Songs, this is the title, verse one of chapter one, Solomon's Song of Songs. Now, surely that means that someone else wrote the Song of Songs and gave it to Solomon. Surely that's what it means. Because Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's a 1,000 women at his disposal. If he slept with each one of them every night, he would have a new sexual partner every uh, for two years and eight months. Absolutely crazy. You know, if Solomon is the author of the Song of Songs, it would be a little bit like Hugh Hefner. Here's, I was playing with... Um, uh, AI this week, and I asked AI to produce Hugh Hef- you know, King Solomon with the face of Hugh Hefner, right? And so here he is. But, you know, if Solomon's the author of Song of Songs, it would, it would be the equivalent of Hugh Hefner writing a poem for Playboy magazine, and a whole bunch of Christians go, oh, that's a pretty good poem. Yeah, can we, can we have the rights to it? And can we sing it in church? And it kind of becomes the number one song on the Christian music charts, right? Because that's what the Song of Songs, it is the Song of Songs. And it's Solomon's. And Solomon was the ancient version of Hugh Hefner. So it cannot be King Solomon, can it? Who, so the question is, who wrote this song? And the answer to that question, I think, like the answer to most questions, is found at the back of the book. So you remember year 10 maths and you're doing the problems and where do you get the answer for year 10 maths? You go to the back of the textbook, don't you? And the answer to this question, who wrote the Song of Songs? Well, the clue is, I think, a little bit like a maths textbook. So you come over right to the end of the book. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 11. And here we see a clue for who the author is. Open up your Bibles, Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 11. This is what we read. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. Great. Why is that interesting? Well, we don't know for sure where this place is, but Baal Hamon means the hill of the multitude. So it's very possible that this is where Solomon kept his multitude of ladies. They have an allowance up there on a hill where 
you know, everywhere and, and all the way through the Song of Songs, a vineyard is uh, a description for a, fem- a woman's body. And so Solomon has a vineyard in Baal Hamon, the hill of the multitude. This is what we read, verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. So if Solomon's vineyard is his harem, his fairly impressive collection of his wives and concubines, then he has these tenants. The tenants are the guys who look after his harem. Uh, They go out looking for more wives, more concubines for him, and they would go out with a thousand shekels of silver to try and get more women for Solomon's indulgent lust. Solomon's a busy man. He's a king. He doesn't have time to go on Tinder or Hinge or whatever the ancient equivalent was. So he sends out his guys to go around finding women and to go and make an offer the parents of that woman cannot refuse. A thousand shekels of silver for every woman. And they bring the most beautiful women back to the hill of multitude Baal Hamon, and some would become his wives. And before you could say, wife number 701, come on down, you know, it was all sorted. That's the picture being painted. Except this one time, it didn't work. The girl speaks up in verse 12, and this is what she says. But my vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruit. So there was at least one courageous woman in the country who was prepared to tell Solomon where he can stick his shekels. That's the picture we're getting here, that Solomon has a vineyard. His tenants go out bringing other women in for Solomon. And this woman says, Nah, my own vineyard, it's mine to give. In other words, my body is mine. I'm not giving it to you, Solomon. You can't buy my love. It's my body's for my beloved. You keep your money. You use it to pay your pimps, but don't you dare try and buy me. You might have all the money in the world. You may have a seemingly incredible love life. Every girl in this city may swoon over you. You might even be the king, the most powerful man in the world, but I'm not interested. I am my beloved's and he is mine and my vineyard belongs to him. Keep your shekels, Solomon. I'm giving my love to my shepherd boy. And then in verse 14, she calls her shepherd boy to come and make love to her. And so Solomon discovers something for the very first time in his life. That for all his money, all his wealth, all his charm, he could buy a lot of sex but he couldn't buy love. Now, most commentators, because that's what this passage is saying, they say, of course, Solomon couldn't possibly be writing this. It's just too negative on Solomon. He is the foil for the whole story. But hang on for a moment, because imagine you're Solomon. Imagine you're Solomon and you can't have been used to getting knockbacks from any other women. Uh, in, you know, for many of us, we're used to getting knockback from people, but not Solomon. He's the ancient equivalent of Chris Hemsworth, Timothy Chalamet and Henry Golding. You know, what woman in their right mind would knock back an invitation for any one of these guys? A lot of doors 
would open. And the same is true for Solomon. Every woman in her dreams would have given him her vineyard, but not this woman. And so you're thinking, if you're Solomon at this point, you're thinking, who does this woman think she is? But then I think it starts to slowly dawn on Solomon, no, who do I think I am? And at the end of the book, verse 13 and 14, we watch this couple, the final verses, we watch this couple walk off into the sunset arm in arm. And I think Solomon's left to think about the girl who got away. The girl who said no. He's left on the outside and he reflects on his life and he realizes somewhere along the line, he has absolutely lost the plot. 700 wives, 300 concubines. What was going on? And here's what I think happened. I can't be 100% sure. I'm 70% sure of this, okay? It's poetry. You're never sure of anything in poetry, right? But here's what I think's going on. I think at the end of his life, he sits down and he writes the Song of Songs. And he writes about a young couple who discovered something he never had, which is lifelong, permanent, exclusive, committed, self-giving love. And I think he's saying, I missed out on that. He's saying, for all the sex I've had, I believe the empty lies that you could have sex without marriage And I wasn't content. And he's learned. You can't have sex without marriage and be content. And so he writes about a very simple shepherd boy and his girl who has something which even the richest, the most powerful king in the world didn't get to have. And that's why Solomon calls this the song of songs. This is his greatest song. He wrote 1,005 songs in his life, but this is the one that tells us what his life really was all about, that he failed to find true love because he refused to commit to one woman for life. So I do think, I think Solomon's the author. And he writes not about what he achieved in love, but what he failed to achieve in love. And if that's the case... Then the other question is, well, who, who is the song written for? Who is he writing this song for? And what's interesting is three times in the song, actually more than three times, but three times in the song, we hear uh, this, the daughters of Jerusalem are being spoken to. The young girl in the song turns to the daughters of Jerusalem, the young women of this, all the single ladies, and she says this to them. She says, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. You hear that three times in the song. Now, that's interesting. Because I think the book of Proverbs is a book that Solomon wrote for his sons. More than 23 times in Proverbs, Solomon addresses the reader as my son. And yet he never addresses his daughters in the book of Proverbs. But then you come to the book of the Song of Songs and Solomon writes and addresses the song to the daughters of Jerusalem. So here's my thesis. I think this song is Solomon. He's written a song for his daughters warning them about the emptiness of sex without permanent, exclusive, committed marital love. And I take it that he writes Proverbs for his sons. 
But the Song of Songs is for his daughter, and he writes it right at the end of his life. So here's a picture that I did with AI again, right? Here he is, surrounded by his daughters, and he's saying to his daughters, wait for marriage. Wait for marriage before you give your body and sex. Don't be led astray by the charming, wealthy, powerful men who will seduce you by their words and wealth into breaking God's commandments. He's saying, look for the humble shepherd boy who loves to obey God and will wait on God. Don't let your ache for intimacy lead you down the path of destruction. Solomon's saying to his daughters, take it from me. I live for sex. I married all your mothers, and I was never content. I was empty. Don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires, girls. Don't emulate my love life. Here's a song for you. Here's true love, ultimate love. This is where it's at. One woman, one man for life, even in the hard times. That's what I missed out. Wait for it. It's worth it. That's his message. And so what about you? Have you bought into the empty lies and the empty promises of sex without marriage? Are you arousing and wakening love at the wrong time for the wrong person? Solomon would tell you, you're a fool. He's been there, he's done that, and he's found it absolutely empty. And if you want contentment, then take it from Solomon. Give yourself one man, one woman, for life in marriage. That's the first way to deal with this longing for intimacy. We long for intimacy that makes us make very bad decisions. Take it from Solomon. The solution to your longing is not to go outside God's commandments. That's the first thing. The second thing that we need to get right here is the contentment of sex within marriage. Because not only does he teach us the emptiness of sex without marriage, he teaches us the contentment of sex within marriage. And so here's my thesis. Solomon sees what this young girl has with her shepherd boy, and he realizes that's the real thing, and that for all his sex, he's never been content. So he tells their story, their contentment in their relationship, enjoying one another. So come back to chapter 8, and the girl makes this famous speech about true love, which we looked at last week. Uh, you remember this, chapter 8, verse 6, she says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. She's saying, go public with your love and make your public commitment to me. We looked at that last week. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters can't quench love. Rivers can't sweep it away. This is the kind of love that we all want, a love that cannot be dampened by many waters, that the flame continues. And then she sings, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Now, I think Solomon's written that. He's put it on the lips of this girl to say what has happened in his life. He did give all the wealth of his house for love, and he was utterly scorned. It led to emptiness. And so Solomon's saying, you don't need to be rich and powerful to experience love. You just need to be faithful to one woman, one man. And that's the point of his... And at this point, the friends speak up and they say, uh, they say, that's the kind of love we want for our sisters. You see that verse eight? They say, we have a sister and her breasts are not yet grown. She's prepubescent. What shall we do for our sister? 
on the day she's spoken for. In other words, how do we prepare our sister for marriage? How do we prepare our sister for marriage? And they reply, look down, if she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. And if she is a door, we'll enclose her with panels of silver. In other words, we will protect her from the Solomon types who would try and win her and woo her and, and, and uh, they want to keep her safe to enjoy what this song is saying about marriage. Jeremy, can I ask, something's gone wrong with um, my fold-back TV down here. Could you come and just have a look at it for me? Thanks, mate. So the friends are saying, what should we do for our little sister? We need to keep her safe from the Solomon types because that's, this is the only way to contentment. Sex is for within marriage. So in verse 10, then the bride starts seeing again. They've said, you know, if she's a wall, we'll build towers. The bride says, I'm a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I've become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. And the Hebrew word there is shalom. It's peace. It's wholeness. It's satisfaction and content. And that's, she says, that's what I bring my man. Contentment, wholeness, peace. And I think that's what Solomon here is telling us he missed out on. This woman was a wall, but Solomon was a door. He had lots of sex, a lot of going in and out. He had lots of sex, but no contentment, no shalom, no wholeness. She was a wall, and she's experienced satisfaction and contentment. And Solomon's saying, sex is great, but only if it's the real thing. Only if it's given in the right, exclusive, male-female, lifelong commitment of marriage, in the context of marriage. There's only contentment in that place. Solomon's saying all other sexual intimacy is inferior and damaging and dishonoring of God. Now, the Song of Songs, it is the most erotic book in the Bible, and it tells us that the most passionate lovemaking, therefore, that you can have is is within secure, self-giving context of marriage. So that holds out hope for inexperienced 20-year-olds who get married as virgins. There's hope for them, right? Because the key to a great sex life is not experience. It's self-giving, secure, lifelong commitment. This holds out hope for exhausted 30-year-olds with young kids and bored 40-year-olds and arthritic 70-year-olds. Because the key to a great sex life is not flexibility and it's not experience. It's passion built on promise. It's the culmination of a life given in service to another. And that's what this book is saying. And the secular evidence bears this out. They don't do these studies in Australia, but the most satisfied sexually people in America are conservative Bible-believing Christians. Because they get this, that marriage is about commitment. And that's the foundation upon which a healthy sex life is built. And it's so different from the message of the world, which suggests that the most passionate sex you can have is not at home with the woman you've been married to for 20 years. It's a sex you can have in your office or after your first date or on a holiday in Bali or the surprising encounter you have with a friend's wife or it's the experience of a 
of a, a getaway in the Hunter Valley after you've been dating someone for three months. And Solomon says, I've had that, been there, done that, it was empty. What I missed out on was the committed, exclusive, self-giving, permanent sex in married. What I missed out on was the ability to stand naked and not ashamed before someone I'd completely committed to and seeing in her face that she had completely committed to me and seeing also in her face the confidence and joy of knowing that I had fully committed to her. All the girls I had sex with, he's saying, I never saw that in them. They knew they were disposable. And so he's saying the best sex is found with the one you're in lifelong male-female exclusive marriage. Now, if sexual commitment is found in loving marriage, it's no wonder that Solomon speaks about boundaries in verse 8 and 9. It's quite obvious and striking. Look down at verse 8. The friends say, we have a little sister and her breasts are not yet grown. Um, What shall we do with our sister on the cusp of puberty? And they say... If contentment comes from sex in marriage, then what shall we do? How will we prepare her for that? And the answer is they ought to help her build a wall. Verse 9, if she is a wall, we'll build towers of silver on her. And if she's a door, we'll enclose her with panels of cedar. Now, the imagery is pretty obvious, right? A wall is, uh, is tough enough not to let anyone in. And a door means people come and go. And here's the deal. These older sisters, the friends of this girl that keep hearing this girl sing, they've been listening to the song and they're saying, you know what, we want this for our sister. And so if she's like a door, if she keeps flirting with all the boys that come by, we're going to put up some boundaries around her. Uh, But if she's a wall... If she isn't hooking up with the guys in the town, then we'll build silver on her. We'll honor her, celebrate her, and adorn her. Essentially, that's what the whole song's been saying. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, be a wall. And this is the way Solomon is saying to his daughters, save yourself for marriage. Wait for sexual intimacy. Your bodies may be saying yes. Your instincts for Intimacy may be saying yes, he may be saying yes, but you are to say no. Not no, but not yet. Wait. Not forever, but for a time. Wait for marriage. Wait for wisdom. Wait for the right guy, not just any guy that comes along and flatters you. Now, lest you think this is a double standard right here, so girls, you know, girls are told to lock themselves up, guys go and sow sow your wild oats. No, no, no. Solomon writes a book for the guys, the Proverbs. The Proverbs are for his sons, song songs are for his daughters. And the book of Proverbs, Solomon repeatedly sits down with his sons and he warns them over and over, guys, you see the girl that keeps winking at you on the street who'd have you in her bed in a second, stay away from her. Don't go down that road, boys. It's the road to destruction. And what's interesting is right at the end of the book of Proverbs, what comes? The last chapter of the book of Proverbs is the wife of noble character. He's saying to the guys, guys, wait for this kind of girl. Uh, Hold out for this kind of girl. This is the girl to look for, to wait for, to search for, the one with noble character character, not the girl that's winking at you on the street and who'd have you in a bed in a second. Wait for this. 
And so the Song of Songs is just the same message, just a different genre of literature, but the message to both men and women is purity now, passion later. And you just notice the art- artistry here. You know, he doesn't, Solomon, as he's talking to his daughters, he doesn't have some old crusty king give this advice to his daughters. No, he, he's, he, he creates this artwork, this poem, where it's a young girl who keeps having earth-shattering sex and keeps coming out of the bedroom and keeps saying to the other girls, wait for this, it's worth it, it's really good. But ladies, wait for it. Honor God with your bodies. And so the message here is really that intimacy is the reward of commitment. If there is no commitment, then don't arouse or awaken intimacy. But if there is commitment, stoke the fires, those of you who are married, and give yourself to one another. And so God is warning us about the emptiness of sex without marriage And he's also reminding us of the contentment, the joy of sex within marriage. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, how are you, how is your wall going? If you're married, do you have a wall around your marriage that you only have eyes for them? And if you're not married, are you a wall or are you a door? And if you're a parent, Are you helping your sons and daughters build a wall? Now, a couple of years ago, I read an article by Jen Wilkin, who writes for the Gospel Coalition. And uh, it was a funny article in which she kind of makes fun of these American Christian dad memes who make the guys who want to date their girls fill out an application to date his daughters, right? Have you seen these memes? Right, so here are a couple. No, you haven't? All right, here are a couple of the memes, right? First meme is this. Son, daddy, I got a girlfriend. Dad, that's great, son. Daughter, daddy, I got a boyfriend. Dad, loads pistol. (laughs) Second meme, rules for dating my daughter. You can't. Shotgun in hand. Another one, prom season, kind of like duck season, only better dressed. (laughs) And fourth one, if you do happen to get a boyfriend, I will find him and I will kill him. (laughs) So here are these Christian dad memes in America. Now, Jen Wilkin, she, she gets the joke, right? She enjoys the joke, but she does pick up on an issue of how exactly fathers should protect their daughters. And citing Song of Songs 8, she tells fathers that you need to build a wall. You've got to go all Rapunzel on your daughter. Build it so high that only the strongest suitors can scale it. Now, that may sound strange and somewhat troubling, but listen to what she says, because she's saying probably not what you think she's saying. She says this. Here's the problem with the shotgun jokes. To anyone paying attention, they announce that you fully expect your daughter to have poor judgment. Be assured that your daughter is paying attention and don't be shocked if she meets your expectations. Then she says, instead of intimidating all your daughter's potential suitors, raise a daughter who intimidates them just fine on her own. Because you know what's intimidating? Strength and dignity, deep faith, self-assuredness, wisdom, kindness, humility, industrious. Those are the bricks that build the wall that withstands the advances of dodgy men, whether they show up 
with your shotgun loaded or not. The unsuitable suitor finds nothing more terrifying than a woman who knows her worth to God and her family. So, fathers, put down your shotgun and take a seat at the tea party. Teach her how to change a flat tire and use a power drill. Discuss politics and economics and theology. Compliment a new outfit or an A in math. Tell her you think she's absolutely beautiful. Kneel at her pink chenille bedside and pray your guts out. Raise a daughter with a fully loaded heart and mind so that a fully loaded shotgun isn't necessary. Amen. So fathers, how are you going at building a wall? How are we all going at building a wall? Because notice the friends take responsibility for each other. They say, how are we going to protect our sisters? They're thinking about how to help each other build the wall. And so we ought to be encouraging each other in our sexual purity, shouldn't we? Now, at this point, I want to pause and say something who really do struggle in this area of their life, and particularly to those who maybe you've messed up in pretty major ways. Some of us aren't yet married, and yet we have experienced um, what we know God has ruled off limits. It may have been a one-off, which you deeply regret, or it may be the pattern of your life right now. There'll be some of us who have every intention of heading home today, continuing this pattern. Some of us have addictions to pornography that we've given up fighting. Some of us are planning holidays, just the two of us, and we know what's going to happen. And we don't have the sense of mind and a concern for God's honor that we would stop it. Some of us are in the middle of an affair right now. Some of us pay for for sex from an escort or a guy or a girl on OnlyFans. And the message to you is come back to the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sin. A day of judgment is coming when he will punish all wrongdoing. But his heart is open to you. His arms are wide and his grace is sufficient to cleanse you of all sin and all unrighteousness. This need not impede your relationship with Christ. It may even strengthen it as you confess it to him. Now, I know that there's an enormity of longing in us and that many of us struggle with this. And I'm not even promising that you'll ever experience freedom from the struggle. But the question is, are you fighting? Are you putting the things to death in your life, confessing them before God, asking him for strength to change? talking to a brother or a sister that you might get their assistance and help? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to honor him with your body? Is he your savior? Great, but is he also your Lord who you gladly obey and serve? This is important. You cannot be at peace with sin in your life and be saved. There must be repentance. Your repentance doesn't save you, but it brings you back to the one who does save you. And his heart is open. He will run to you if you turn back to him. So come to him and tell him that you've believed the emptiness of sex, the lies of sex, and go to him for mercy and grace. And he will wash you and cleanse you and give you the spirit 
to say no to sin. That's the second thing, the contentment of sex within marriage, and we believe the lie that contentment is found elsewhere. Thirdly and finally, we come to the mystery of marriage without sex. Strange. But the final two verses of the Song of Songs, this is how the song ends, right? Leave you with with something missing. Last two verses, he sings... You who dwell in the gardens, he's singing this to his girl. You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. He's saying, hey, I want to chat. Let's talk. Isn't that nice? (laughs) And then she says, verse 14, this is the final verse, come away or literally hasten towards me, hurry to me, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. She asks for sex. He asked for conversation. <laughs> you couldn't write this, could you? Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you told a friend who doesn't believe in Jesus that, you know, there's a book in the Bible and the very last line of that book is of a girl saying to her, her husband, hey, let's have sex. They wouldn't believe. I wouldn't have believed it until I read this this week. The final verse is her saying to him, let's have sex. And his final words are, no, let's, let's chat. Yeah. <laughs> just the Bible is so surprising and wonderful. But this is their life together. They are lovers and they are friends. And what's interesting here is the book doesn't actually end in the bedroom. We hear a lot of the bedroom in the book, but they don't get naked here. The song ends with her inviting him to be intimate with her. It, inve- it, it ends with them wanting to touch and talk. But we're left with that longing. They never get there at the end. We're left with the same kind of longing that the book starts, where she sings, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his lovemaking is better than wine. She's longing for it. And the book finishes with longing. And, uh, and I think it's ending this way, because I think Solomon ultimately is saying, actually, even sex in marriage, it will never fully complete you. It never actually fulfills you. The longing leaves us longing for more. And as we read through the Bible, we arrive at the Gospels where we meet a groom who gives his own life up for his bride, the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he loves her. And in Ephesians 5, this is what we read. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason a man will leave father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says, This is a profound mystery, but I'm not talking about husband and wife here. I'm talking about Christ's love for the church. And then when we get to right at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, we read, Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb which is Jesus, has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. So the Bible ends with longing and this this song ends with longing and the message is clear. The only thing which can complete you, that will fill you, which will bring complete, complete contentment, shalom, happiness and satisfaction, it's not actually getting married to someone on this world. It's coming to the Lord Jesus And everyone in this room is waiting for the day that he will return and we will stand in his presence and the church will be married to Christ and there won't be any sex 
but there will be complete contentment, flourishing, and joy. That's what I'm hanging out for. And that's the mystery of marriage without sex. There's a coming day where there will be a marriage without sex. My wife is awesome. I love her, but she can't complete me. This song, the Song of Songs, it used to be the Song of Songs, but I said this week one, it's no longer the Song of Songs because Christians today aren't singing it. I don't know anyone who's put it to, to music today, and that's a problem. Liv, you've got some work to do. <laughs> but um, it's because it's no longer the Song of Songs because we sing of a better song, a song of our Savior's love for us. The Song of Songs is God's love poured out in the Lord Jesus for us. I said week one that, you know, reading the Song of Songs can be a little bit like going on a game show. You know, here's the house, here's the car, here's the boat, and that's what marriage is. And uh, for those who aren't married, it's like, bum, bum, you don't get the house, the car, the boat, you get the steak knives. And great, what good are steak knives when I had the house, the car, the boat on sale? I remember talking to my wife um, uh, just before I was to preach on this and we we're lying in bed and I was talking to her about the series coming up. And she said to me, you know what, Toby, for everyone in the room, you've got to flip the metaphor. It's not like marriage is the car, the house, the boat. <laughs> marriage isn't the grand prize. Jesus is the grand prize. And marriage is just the steak knives. Some of us get the steak knives, some of us don't. Who cares when Jesus is on offer to us all? And she said, Toby, it's not just singles who need to hear that message. It's the marrieds. Otherwise, you'll place so much pressure on your partner to complete you. <laughs> who wants to be married to someone who thinks you are, have the ability to complete them? I can't live up to that kind of pressure. I'm not perfect and she's not perfect. She's, my wife's not Jesus. She can't fill the deepest longings. Only he can. Now at this point, strange segue, but... Um, Barbie movie actually gets it right, <laughs> right? Because the climax of the, so of, of the Barbie movie is Ken's in desperate love for Barbie. And, and she says to him, Ken, grow up. The purpose of your life is, is it's got, you can't base the purpose of your life on romantic love. You, you should be able to go through life with joy and contentment without that. You have to be enough. Uh, you have to be enough in and obviously. You don't need anyone else. Certainly you don't need a partner or romantic love to feel enough in life. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, we no longer make movies where the heroine's destiny is to fall in love. All the Disney movies of the past where Cinderella gets the guy, you know, Rapunzel gets the guy. But if you look at the Disney movies now... The, the storyline of the protagonist getting her man, that's been completely retired. And Barbie movie just reiterates that. You don't need a man in order to be enough. But one thing Barbie movie gets wrong is it actually says you don't need anyone. And that's plainly false. It's, telling, it's a, a cruel thing to tell people that they are enough within themselves. We're not enough within ourselves. Human beings need other human beings. We all are interconnected into these vast webs of social inter, uh, influence and causality. 
we can't live without relying on other people. It gets it right. You don't need marriage, but we do need one another. That's the problem, I think, with Barbie movie. And I think the Song of Songs, what it's like, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. All the pieces are broken. All They're all messed up. And as we look at this song, we, we see what love should be. We see the box of the jigsaw puzzle. And it enables us to cope with the mess in the present. And it reminds us that our only hope for this kind of deep and rich and joy-filled intimacy ultimately is the Lord Jesus. And so it should enable us to say, you know what, I'd love to be married, but I don't need a husband or a wife in my life to be content. I've got Christ. I've got his people. And that's enough for me. And it should say for others, I'd love for my marriage to be better, but I don't need that in order to be content. I've got Christ. I've got God's people. And that's enough for me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might learn the lessons of this book and so find contentment. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.